Well, good morning, everyone. It's my privilege and responsibility to preach at the start of a new term, a new season for us. But uh, I've been pondering this morning as the worship's progressed, and, and it really started in the prayer meeting this morning, where in the book of Revelation, there's a repeated phrase which says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says plural, but actually there are seven letters to individual churches. And I just want us to pick up a sense of what the Spirit is saying to us at this season. Because I've got a very different message today to the last time I preached. The last time I preached, you might recall... It was the invitation to kiss the sun. It was a call to intimacy. But today, it's more a call to action. And Amarachi, you were right in the prayer meeting this morning because a word came in the prayer meeting of how God called Moses, called him to one side, called him to action. I was walking around the school before the start this morning, as is a, a bit of a habit of mine when I'm preaching, pray all around the site. And I was confronted, looking through the window at me, by a skeleton. <laughs> and immediately, the scripture from Ezekiel 37 came to me, can these dry bones live? And I hadn't fully liaised with... Uh, Becca this morning on her choice of songs, but I don't know whether you know, it's one of the lines of the song was, he can make, turn bones yes. into armies. And the awesome responsibility, if you like, is when you look in Ezekiel chapter 37 and God says, can these bones live? God then says to him, well, you prophesy then. You prophesy to the bones. So this morning, I'm going to prophesy that I believe that God is doing something fresh in us and he's going to turn, as it were, dry bones into an army. Yes. Not just the bride of Christ, but the army of God. And this message will connect back to our Ephesians series, but also fit very well in terms of what Carl brought to us last Sunday, the God who answers prayer. And my honest desire and prayer is that today's teaching will help our understanding of God's purposes for us as a church, for Christ church, especially as we start our 21 days of prayer next Sunday. So let's turn, if you will, or look it up on whatever device you use nowadays. I still use the scrolls, you know, <laughs> like, like the Apostle Paul. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, will you? If you haven't got a Bible, the words will come up on the screen, thanks to the services of Becca, who works behind the scenes as our administrator. Matthew 16, I'm reading from the NIV version and picking up in verse 13. Probably will be fairly familiar verses to many, but let's come at them as if you've never read them before. Let the Holy Spirit speak afresh, shall we? 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, his followers, his serious followers, his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now recorded in these verses is a big question, a big revelation, a big promise and a big responsibility. We're going big this morning. <laughs> Firstly the big question. The big question posed in these verses is not who other people say I am but who do you personally say I am? Recorded in verse 15. And still today, this is the big question. Who is Jesus to you? And the answer can only come from a personal revelation and a conviction, just as it did for Peter on that particular occasion that we've just read of. Secondly, the big revelation. The big revelation received by Peter, recorded in verse 16, was that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's almost like he was singing, oh, there's nothing better than you. That was his revelation. Peter's conviction was that Jesus was the Christ, literally meaning the anointed one, the one promised by the Old Testament prophets who would come anointed by God to be his king, the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one we have exalted this morning in our praise. And significantly, it was in the extreme north of Galilee, at Caesarea Philippi, a stronghold, of ancient demon gods of Syria, Greece, and also Rome, in a place of much religious error, that God the Father chose to reveal Jesus to be his son. For as Jesus explained to Peter, he had not come to that conclusion by human reasoning. He had received a revelation from God the Father in heaven. The big revelation. Have you had the big revelation? Have you accepted the big revelation? Thirdly, Jesus, in continuing his conversation, included making a big promise, saying, as recorded in verse 18, I will 
build my church. And unlike many of God's promises to us, this promise was not conditional on how anyone responds. It wasn't conditional on how you or I respond. Either with our help as his co-laborers or without our help, the Lord will build his church. And there's no doubt about it, he will build his church. We have his word on it. He calls things which are not yet as though they are. He's that confident in his word. Must have get back into a previous preach, must I? We know from the original Greek text in the New Testament that Jesus said to Peter, you are Petros, translated as Peter, but meaning a small stone. Jesus was inferring that Peter was, like all of us, small and weak. But, said Jesus, upon this Petra, different Greek word, which means large rock or boulder, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. In the Middle Eastern culture, traditionally, the city elders sat at the city gates from where they made decisions for their community. And in that way, they ruled over their city. And so in referring to the gates of Hades, the place of departed spirits, Jesus was saying that the invisible evil ruling of powers and authorities, including the power of death itself, will not be able to overcome the might of Christ's church. What a big promise. Jesus will build his church and it will be a victorious church. However, let me clarify what or who was the rock which Jesus said he would build his church on. Jesus wasn't saying that Peter would be the rock on which he would build his church. For he had just said to Peter, you are Petrus, you are small and weak. Peter was not a solid or stable rock to be the foundation of Christ's church. But Jesus himself and the revelation which Peter had received of who Jesus is, that would be the foundation. That would be like a massive solid rock upon which Jesus would build his church. The personal realisation and acceptance of who Jesus is, including his death, resurrection and glorification as King of Kings, is the foundational belief upon which Christ's church is built. The big promise. Fourthly, verse 19 contains a big responsibility. Jesus speaks of giving his church the keys of God's kingdom. The reference to keys denotes authority. Having just made the unconditional promise that he will build his church, Jesus then speaks of giving his church his authority to bind and to loose on earth. Now, biblical scholars say that the original Greek text of this verse has a complex structure, which in fact has resulted in different interpretations by people. However, reputable commentators explain that from the construction behind the phrases will be bound 
and will be loosed in heaven, the provision to bind and loose was then activated through all that Christ subsequently accomplished through his death and resurrection. And the church has now been entrusted with the big responsibility of implementing all that Jesus has accomplished. The imagery of binding and loosing is rabbinical. It is about forbidding and permitting things. Jesus was saying to Peter that the church which Jesus would build would be empowered to carry out the responsibility of advancing God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Whilst the activity of binding and loosing is commonly regarded as an activity of prayer. I'd like to suggest, however, without wishing to take anything away from the importance of this activity in prayer, that the activities of binding and loosing extend to more than just prayer. For example, through the preaching of forgiveness of sin through faith in Jesus, in a very way we loose a person from the guilt of their sin. And the evil activity of demons affecting a person can be bound in the name of Jesus. Christ has entrusted to his church the responsibility to advance God's kingdom. And to that end, what we bind on earth and what we loose on earth will be activated in heaven. And with that in mind, I've felt that I should concentrate today on a particular aspect of the nature of Christ's church. For although the big promise of Jesus is that he will build his church, it is not, of course, as I'm sure you know, but let's be clear, a physical building. As we saw from our Ephesians teaching series last term, church is not a physical building. That's why we can meet in any building. But we praise God for the... Uh, provision of this building. Church is not a physical building, but it is a temple of living stones. People made alive by the Spirit of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus and joined together in commitment to form a dwelling place which God can inhabit by his Spirit. Christ's church is also the family of God. It's the body and his army on the earth. And the church is also Christ's bride. It cannot be understood fully by human understanding. I mean, think about it for a minute. How can church be an army which is like a city on a hill dressed as a bride? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to man's limited understanding. It is, as we recognize during our Ephesians teaching series, God's wisdom. It's God's masterpiece. It's like nothing else on earth. You may recall that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul speaks of the church as God's manifold wisdom. That's an old-fashioned word. Another word for manifold would be multifaceted. The church of God is multifaceted in a similar way to how a cut diamond has multiple facets. When we're doing conferences, I usually get my helper up at this point. Have you got your engagement ring on, darling? <laughs> If you look at Dorothy's engagement ring, which has been on her finger for 55 years, yes. praise God. Yes, indeed. Yeah, she needs an applause for that. 
A diamond is multifaceted. That means it, it, it's cut with multiple, the technical term is facets. It's many-sided, all of which, when light shines on it, add to and reflect the beauty of the diamond. Mm. Similarly, there are many facets, or we might say aspects, to Christ's church, which together, when illuminated by the light of God's word, show the brilliance of God's manifold wisdom, hey, not just to the world, but also to evil powers in the invisible realm. Paul speaks of it as a mystery, which at one time was kept a secret in the mind of God, which, which, which now has been revealed, namely, that through a body of people from every tribe and nation, of Jews and Gentiles, the fullness of Jesus Christ will be expressed on the earth. God, by his spirit, will live among his people and we welcome him here today. He will live among his people, his body, the church, to equip, empower and mature us to extend Christ's victory over evil. And God's will and his eternal purposes will have their fulfillment through the church. Church elders not only have the responsibility to care for the flock of God, which has been entrusted to them, but also with the assistance and advice from the indispensable Ephesians 4.11 ministry gifts to seek to build church as a full expression of the multifaceted wisdom of God. That is for church to be more than a household of God's worldwide family, but also to be a functioning body of believers with each person playing their part. A body of people being built together as a spiritual house for God's presence. A house where as God's royal priesthood we offer up sacrifices of praise and then go out into the fallen world as ambassadors of God's kingdom. These are all facets of God's design for Christ's church. As church, we're like a flock of sheep led by and cared for by good shepherds. We're a company of pilgrims journeying together and corporately we're to be like a city on a hill, a visible presence in our dark world, living in a state of preparedness like a bride who's ready for a husband, which Paul says is a profound mystery. Just as a cut diamond has many facets cut at different angles with each adding to the beauty of the precious stone, so in a similar way the church as God intends it to be has many aspects. It must be viewed from different angles to see the fullness of the wisdom of God displayed in the church. You see, no single picture from the many biblical analogies for the church provides an adequate grasp of the nature of Christ's church. We need an understanding of them all to become all that God wants Christ church to be. Some of the pictures of church, such as church as family and as a body, are probably very familiar to us as they are very evident in the Bible. But other analogies, such as church as God's ecclesia, can only be understood from digging into the scriptures and from having some knowledge of the culture of the time. From the original New Testament text, when Jesus made his big promise to build his church, he promised to build his ecclesia. 
The Greek word in Matthew 16, 18 and in 109 other places in the New Testament is the word ecclesia. Excuse me if you happen to have a Greek background and the pronunciation's a bit naff. But the word's up there on the screen, I think. No. Okay. It'll come. This word in the Greek text of the original New Testament is generally translated in English versions of the Bible as church. When Paul spoke in Ephesians 3 of how it is God's intention through the church to show the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the invisible realm, significantly the word translated as church in the original Greek was ecclesia. The ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia. My ecclesia will show the manifold wisdom of God to the invisible powers. Jesus promised he would build, that is to say, he would establish his ecclesia on the earth. And through revelation given to Paul, we discover that his ecclesia would make known, as I've just said, to the evil powers, as well as to the people of the world, the multifaceted wisdom of God. I think it's important, therefore, that we have an understanding of what it means for us as a church to be God's ecclesia, to be all that God wants us to be. The word ecclesia comes from two Greek words, which when put together... It's crashed. crashed. Listen, Listen on. When the two words are put together... It literally means to call out of. A church is thus a company of God's called out ones. Those who have been called by God, and in the words of Colossians 1.13, and delivered from out of the kingdom of darkness. Amen? We're called out ones. However, by digging into the background of the meaning of this word, ecclesia, we can gain a greater understanding of an aspect of God's intention for Christ's church. In the Old Testament, the equivalent word for ecclesia is the word kahal, K-A-H-A-L. It was the word commonly used to speak of God's people being called out of their tents or homes to assemble together to hear from God. And so when Jesus said he would build his church, for those who would be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, they would have understood that Jesus was saying he would establish his assembly of called out people. However, there's more, for at the time of Jesus, especially in Greek societies, their cities and towns each had an ecclesia. The secular Ecclesia was the convened assembly of a city of towns, of, uh, sorry, of a city and or town's citizens. They had unlimited power to make governmental decisions for their community, providing, that is, the decisions that they made conformed to the laws of the country. The citizens were literally called out of their homes and places of business to assemble to consider matters concerning the governing and protection of their city or town. 
And every free citizen had a right and a responsibility to participate in the ecclesia. Only slaves were excluded. Hmm? Any free people here this morning? You get in the parallel? By way of example, the assembly had the powers to appoint people and to dismiss people in public office, such as magistrates. They could declare war and assign troops to protect their city. They could set and direct general policies for a peaceful operation of their community. And they could raise and manage the allocation of the city's finances. And believe it or not, but it's the truth, the meetings of a city's secular ecclesia began with prayer and sacrifices offered up to their heathen gods. And so, with that understanding of the culture of the day, I would suggest that when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was most likely meaning that just as the citizens of the cities of his day assembled together as their community's governing ecclesia, so in a similar way, he would have his church, which would be a governing ecclesia to influence things for the good of their communities through prayer and in other ways. And furthermore, Jesus promised that the ruling invisible evil powers will not be able to overcome the power of his ecclesia for the church for what the church binds and looses on the earth will be activated in the heavenly realm in the old testament times when the trumpet was sounded i nearly brought my chauffeur this morning i was, I was hesitant but <laughs> In the Old Testament times, when the trumpet was sounded in the camp of Israel, God's called out people came out of their tents and gathered together to meet with God, to hear from him. When the summons went out in New Testament times, in cities such as Ephesus and Athens, the free citizens of the city, the called out ones, assembled to pray and offer up sacrifices to their heathen gods and to set in place decisions which would affect their community. And in our day, God's intention is for a local church to function as his ecclesia, to assemble together, to offer up sacrifices of praise to the one true God and through prayer to establish matters for the good of their city. A facet of Christ's church as the multifaceted wisdom of God is for local church congregations to function as God's ecclesia, to be an assembly of called out ones who gather together to hear prophetically, to hear from God and to exercise the power given to us by the Lord. For as Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, God has placed all things under Christ's feet. That is under his authority for the church, for the benefit of the church. Just as a secular ecclesia of that time had unlimited powers in the governing of a city's affairs, so in a similar way we have been given all authority within the laws of God's kingdom to influence positively and to protect our community, our country, and the nations of the world, principally through prayer.
Jesus said, did he not, you can ask anything in my name. And he has given us the authority to forbid in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit to forbid harmful things from happening in our world whilst permitting by praying into being things appertaining to his kingdom. And so, I believe the Holy Spirit wants me to simply encourage you as much as your practical circumstances permit, not to neglect participating in our church prayer meetings. In saying that, I'm conscious I won't be here next Sunday night because we're ministering in Ireland, just to explain. <laughs> we can't get home from preaching in the morning. Let's be a church which makes known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the manifest, manifold wisdom of God as we increasingly function as God's ecclesia, advancing his kingdom on the earth through prayer as well as in other ways. The picture on the screen is not me reminiscing it represents a prophetic proclamation made over Colchester 34 years ago from Jumbo, Colchester's famous Victoria Water Tower, which significantly at one time, think about it, was the source of life to the town. The occasion was when literally hundreds of Christians from across the churches of Colchester, processed around the town centre, singing and declaring about the goodness of God and praying for our town. In 1987 and 1988, thousands of Christians had marched around London praising and praying for the nation's capital. And in 1989 the organisers decided to expand what had become known as March for Jesus and fast becoming a move of God, to expand it to 45 major city locations around the UK. And by special arrangement with the organisers, Colchester, which at that time was not a city, was granted permission to be the 46th venue, an extra venue for March for Jesus that year, with the date coinciding with the start of a joint church's townwide mission, including nightly tent meetings in the Lower Castle Park. There was a confidence and an expectancy among the churches of Colchester. And the mission resulted in many healings and salvations as well, incidentally, as Simon Andrews finding himself a wife. <laughs> and as a local church leader, I was part of the mission team of dozens of local volunteers. As I say, I don't share that to reminisce, but hopefully to inspire us, 
to stir our faith that when we pray for our community and our country, our prayers are added to those of previous generations and together we are, as it were, filling heaven's golden bowls before God's throne, referred to in Revelation chapter 5. In 1999, ten years later, there was a six-weeks TV documentary series on Colchester called Soldier Town, which incidentally Ian Hooper appeared in. I don't know where he's here this morning. And I remember at that town being stirred by the thought that one day Colchester could be known not just as Soldier Town, but as Salvation Town. And I'll be honest with you, I stand before you today and I'm not as full of faith for this as I once was. So I need you to pray for me. I want to pray for myself. I want to pray for us as a church and for the churches of Colchester for a fresh confidence that we can make a difference, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So let me pray. In fact, if you want to be included in this prayer, why don't you just stand to your feet? Please don't feel a compulsion if you don't feel ready. When people do that, you don't know what they're going to pray. So I, I, I recognize as faith. But I just want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, will you impregnate us with the same concern and prayer burden which Nehemiah had for his home city of Jerusalem? with the same persevering spirit as Isaiah had who determined when he said for the sake of Jerusalem I'm not going to keep silent until the city is known as a place of righteousness and salvation and in the words of a march for Jesus song now you powers in the heavens above bow down you powers on the earth below bow down and acknowledge that Jesus, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And he has promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you powers in the heavens above, bow down. And you powers on the earth below, bow down and acknowledge that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is Lord, is Lord. Now you powers in the heavens above, bow down, and you powers on the earth below, bow down and acknowledge that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is Lord, is Lord, he is Lord.
risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He city over our nation he is Lord he is risen he is risen from the dead and he is Lord every day shall bow every time confess that Jesus Christ yeah.